HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Hey, Greg. How are you, buddy? I'm doing good, man. How you been? It's been a minute. It's been three weeks uh, since you looked at me. Um, oh, no, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been three weeks that the that we've been <laughs> off the air because the station was on a break. Um, glad to be back. Sadly, uh, due to scheduling uh, issues, Damon can't be here this week. Um, so it's just it's just you and I, pal. I know. Just uh, all, it, that that bare naked ladies reference was a, <laughs> it was a, it was a sleeper bomb. It took a second, and I was like, "What? The, I can't see you." This is the first, and then it kicked in. Yeah, we keep it. We like to keep it current for the kids here on the Speakeasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's us. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure you've been up to a lot in three weeks. But what have you been up to? Yeah, man. Um. <laughs> a lot of new stuff and a lot of the same. It's funny when now when someone's like, "Hey, I haven't seen you in a week, a month, two years. What have you been up to?" The answer is always <laughs> kind of like a lot, but also just kind of the you know the same old shit. Um, and it's and it's funny because in a lot of ways it does feel like we're back to something that vaguely resembles what I remember normal being like. Mm. You know, like I can go out to a bar. Uh, I've certainly been traveling a lot because I'm in my early 30s and every single person I've ever known is getting married. So it's like every other weekend I'm I'm on a plane to somewhere, which is fun, but also (laughs) a tad exhausting and not cheap. Um, But there's also like some some weird vestiges of the last two years that are hanging around. Like I know uh, you're doing some of this as well, but um, I'm still occasionally teaching some fun cocktail classes over Zoom, which I know you're... Uh, you you come down a little bit more on the Eeyore side of this, yeah. but I, I kind of like them, man. I think they're fun. You know, it's like one second you're in your apartment, you move some stuff around, you get a good background. And the next second, you're kind of like, it's like, bam, you're on that stage. And I don't know. I don't get to do that very much anymore, seeing as I'm daywalking now more often than not. So it's, it's fun to be able to kind of dive back into that and just kind of shoot the shit about drinks with people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, working on anything cool on a Zoom class? 
Yeah. So for this, for this one Zoom class, I did a little while. I did it with a group out of North Carolina. There were tons and tons of fun. And um, based on their requests and what they said they liked, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to try and see if I can find a recipe for this class for a dry, mar- uh, dry Manhattan that doesn't suck. And for anyone listening, it doesn't exist. It's it's El Dorado. It's the Northwest Passage. As far as I'm concerned, it's impossible. Like Dry Manhattan is just uh, this is a this is a subjective, objective opinion. <laughs> They're just not good. However, uh, I was messing around with a sort of you know a bunch of the supporting characters in this drink, and I got it to a point where I'd sort of broken down the vermouth into a little bit of Bianco, a little bit of uh, shochu actually, which kind of provides some of the more, it provides that vermouth mouthfeel with a little bit more kind of, um, velvety texture and just a pinch of yellow chartreuse. And I was like, this is good, but the whiskey just isn't working. And I've been experimenting with it. This is, this is pretty late at night. Um, and I was like, you know what? I bet that if I ditched the whiskey entirely and took plantation pineapple rum and coconut cartel rum from our former guests on the speakeasy. Actually, I bet I can make something that tastes like a pina colada, but drinks like a martini. And, and I did it. I I, I don't want to say I'm a genius. You can, if you want to Souther. but I remember again, because this is fairly late in the experimentation, I think I actually texted you and Damon. You did because yeah, because I was like, I have created something incredible and the world needs to know. Yeah, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna chalk that up to an absolute drunk text. <laughs> <laughs> as 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 you should, as well you should. But I d- I will say I did go back and road test it the next day uh, with a clearer head, and it actually it 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 bears out. So I'm I'm gonna pat myself on the back for that one. Call that a victory for the scientific process. And, so you are uh, indeed it. Move on. You you are indeed it. You you confirmed it, and then now you've you've taught it to other people. So like you're getting it out there. Exactly. It's out, it's out living in the world now. Well, does it have a, does it have a moniker? Uh, I've been calling it the Slurpee heiress, but I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere in there, just kind of like it's because it, I, I, I always loved the pina colada Slurpee flavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, that was always my, my go-to. I, I would always get super pumped whenever I'd walk into a Seven Eleven and they had that particular one spinning back there. So something along those lines, but I'm still, I'm still R and Ding it. So if anybody out there listening has a better idea, uh, the, the phone lines are open. Yeah. Uh, what about well, you, man? You've uh, been doing any zoom classes lately? Well, kind of, kind of no. And kind of yes at the same time. So I think you're right. I was a bit Eeyore-ish regarding zoom classes. And I think it was because the, all of the weight of it was on my own shoulders. Uh, you might remember a couple episodes back we had on Jack Schramm and we talked about the, the classes that he's been doing with a company called Gush they reached out to me and asked if I would do a class uh, as well. So I'm doing a six part series with Gush um, where uh, I think it's, it's a little bit more, you know, highly produced than, you know, as you just said, me just setting up with a background in the back of the, there's a studio and everything. So six part series where on the first episode, we're going to use some classic, but you, you get a box sent to you when you sign up and all this stuff. So the box has all the things you need. We're going to make a drink using Angostura bitters and a drink using, um, Regan's orange bitters, but then while we're drinking those drinks, we're going to build two new bitters. And then the next episode is a month later where we will then use those two bitters in two cocktails while we then build two new bitters and kind of rinse and repeat for six episodes with some surprises in there. We're going to do some food. We're going to make, uh, 
some we're going to use uh, bitters in the kitchen as well so and have some guest chefs on so it's going to be a really a cool a cool time it's uh, Sadly, it's called The Bitter's Truth. I, I didn't name it. <laughs> I, I didn't name it. I, I wish I had a little more input on the name because uh, you've heard me, of course, on the show uh, lament many, many times how just patently annoying bitters companies are with the fact that they all seem to feel its obligation to put the word bitter or bitters in their name, which then just makes it a confusing cavalcade of you know bottles on the shelf. Bitter Truth, Bitter in, Bitter, Bitter... Bitter decision, Mrs. Better's bitters. You know, like it's just annoying. <laughs> um, but uh, um, but this is going to be a really fun class. Uh, and again, I think the it's the more like produced. I feel like during my very first um, experiences with Zoom classes was during the darkness of of COVID, and it was just it was me hanging on by a thread. You know, this feels a little bit more planned. It's going to be more well executed. It's going to be honestly well lit. Uh, we'll have good sound. You know what I mean? It's going to be pretty rad. Um, so, you know, if you're interested, uh, listener, um, go check out my Instagram. There's a direct link uh, there. I'll, I'll put the I'll put the link up on the Speakeasy uh, Instagram as well um, and, and join me. I'd love to see you. The last class we did, we had about 70 attendees and it makes for a pretty fun and rowdy time. Um, but I don't have any input on your drink, but I'm guessing that maybe uh, our guests may have something to say. Um, today in the virtual studio, we're hanging out with um, Harrison Snow and uh, the legendary Brother Cleve. And both of these guys are now operating a spot uh, sort of in my neighborhood in Lower East Side called Lullaby, the much uh, anticipated opening that's the, that happened a couple weeks ago. So we're excited to have you both on. Welcome to the virtual studio, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, so I've visited your spot several times. And in fact, I was just there a couple of nights ago tasting some rare, new, and unusual bottles that a, a, a crew of, I don't know, heavy hitters brought in. I just, I don't know how I got invited. Um, but man, uh, really been enjoying the space. Uh, you guys want to talk about Lullaby a little bit? I'll let Harrison go first here. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's so, the brains behind it. Oh no, that's not true. Just the bronze. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Lullaby, um, sort of a weird happenstance. Uh, I, um, I'd been working in Boston for uh, a number of years, uh, bartending, doing cocktails. That's where Brother Cleve and I crossed paths. And um, I had just uh, moved to New York uh, to kind of, you know, broaden my horizons and, and uh, you know, try and look at new job opportunities. Um, and uh, the, uh, the second wave of the pandemic hit. Uh, I was bartending at a, a fine dining restaurant in Midtown. And um, uh, I had reconnected with a friend of mine who had gone to college in Boston, who's from here, born and raised, uh, has a, a, a very profound connection with this neighborhood too. Uh, his name is Jake Hodas. Um, and uh, we were just spending a lot of time together uh, cooking and making cocktails. He was uh, part of my, you know, I feel like everybody during the pandemic, uh, you know, during those sort of peak uh, times of shutdown had like their small crew of people that they were comfortable socializing with you sure. know maybe everybody like had a, everybody people. had a pod that was everyone had a pod so he exactly so he was he uh he and uh he and my cousin are roommates and they were they were that was my pod it was me and my roommate and those two and uh so we were constantly just cooking and and making cocktails and uh he and i just started sort of talking about you know in the in the absence of 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 real kind of um uh social interaction and uh and in the absence of of bars and restaurants like what our ideal bar would be post pandemic um and that 
kind of uh, conversation continued and we were like, hey, maybe we should we should try this. And we started talking to some people uh, who we'd previously worked with and for, um, you know, in our various times working in hospitality and uh, very quickly became a reality. Um, And uh, Brother Cleve was was one of those early conversations just as somebody who's been a mentor to me. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, we asked him about advice on the concept and the logistics and, you know, fundraising and everything like that. And the next thing we know, I was like, hey, do you want to just like be a part of this? Um, And uh, he was like, absolutely. Um, and it, we saw it as a really cool opportunity to um, bring Brother Cleve, who is so well known and recognized, obviously all over the country, but particularly in Boston, revered in Boston um, as a, a figure in music and cocktails and hospitality. And, uh, you know, he's never had a place to kind of have his, you know, like a home base in New York, even though he spent so much time here. Uh, so we were like, if, if there's an opportunity to bring Brother Cleve to New York and to the people of New York, um, in the form of a, a cocktail bar, like we got to make it happen. I mean, it's, yeah, here I am. it's pretty, yeah, and here you are. It's pretty fascinating to me that this came together as quickly as it did. And of course that it came together during the pandemic. Do you think that because of the pandemic limiting what, what we could all do, uh, you just had more time to sit down and like noodle over this thing? Yeah, totally. Um, I think that, uh, I, I think a lot of people did actually, you know, I'm starting to, to see that particularly in, in, uh, you know, in, in the groups that I socialize with, I think that, uh, Jake likes to use the expression. It, it, it put a battery in people's back. Everybody was, you know, um, kind of just sitting in their respective homes and apartments. And, you know, I think everybody got a little bit of a hunger to like go and do something. And we were seeing the world crumble in front of our eyes. Um, and there's not really much we could do about it. So I think that people, yeah, I think that was absolutely a contributor. We had the time and we also, we, you know, we saw what this, what this pandemic and, and how it was handled did to our industry. Um, and it was, it was, it was really challenging to watch and to be a part of, you know, being somebody who was continuously working throughout, uh, you know, those various spikes, um, in, in the, you know, you know, during COVID wave one, two, and then Omicron, like, um, it was tough to see that happen to our industry. And then also simultaneously, like, you know, I was working, I think, at, you know, at the, the sort of the peak of, 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 um, of that, that second wave, that big wave, everybody was staffed so lean. And so I was working at Shalom Japan in Williamsburg one shift a week. Um, and, uh, it was, there was hardly any business, but there, you know, it was, it was crazy to, to be like in, you know, it was freezing cold outside, literally freezing cold. And you have people in mittens and, you know, coats and, you know, you know, big kind of down jackets that are sitting out in this like poorly constructed little hut outside just because they want to go out and get, and like, and, and be at a restaurant. And I think that seeing that kind of stuff for all of us was, was just so eye opening because it was like, regardless of how this is, this pandemic has been handled, uh, you know, from a, you know, for, I, you know, in terms of like support for our industry, um, it's clear that this is, this is an essential part of people's lives, you know, right. being able to go out and, and spend time with one another and share good food and drink. It's like, if it wasn't, you would just sort of take out and sit at home. Like we've all been doing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, w- I was running a, a place in Boston that uh, during the first wave that when it, when they allowed places to open again, which I think was the 
June or July of uh, 2019, and we had a, a patio. Uh, so with, we, were, we were the first ones to open in the, in the seaport neighborhood in Boston, which is kind of a big touristy kind of place. And we thought, is anybody going to show up? At this it's like are people just you know too <laughs> afraid or whatever and we got our asses kicked like the first day people were like woohoo i'm here let's drink and uh and half of my staff didn't come back like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid i'm gonna die if i go to work so basically the, it was me and the assistant manager and we were working like 15 hour days and just getting our asses handed to us uh but it was it was really invigorating because people were like i just i just want to be back out and talk to people and hang out and, and have drinks and have food and and socialize and not be uh locked in my house so it was that was good but then you know the the next wave or two and you can't sit outside in in boston as you can't in new york really in the in the middle of january so we had no outdoor seating so uh and and then harrison came and, and worked uh that summer, I, you know, I finally got a few people that could come to work and, and he came in and it was like, uh, yay, here's somebody that uh, knows what they're doing. You know, I, I actually hired a couple of <coughs> bartenders that, well, well, I, I you know, I, I work in a, uh, I work in a brewery, I work in a brew pub and I, I, I can pour beer really well. I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, it was uh, so, so, I mean, one guy I had somebody came in one night and uh, and uh, ordered a Moscow Mule, and he said, "I don't think I know what that is." And fortunately, I was nearby, and I just pushed him aside and said, "Yeah, coming right up." So, you know, <laughs> it was stuff like that. It was uh, just mind-boggling, and you know, and I'm I'm a DJ and musician, and all that work just completely died, and all the. Uh, Tiki festivals and cocktail festivals I've been doing for years, all that went away. So, uh, I mean, fortunately, I was able to make good money while this place was, uh, you know, during the, the summer months. And, it, you know, it rains a lot. So, there, you know, there's your, there goes like half of July and stuff like that. So, there, there were still lots of challenges. And then I finally did actually go out of business um, last, um, right after, right before Christmas this past year. Um, because the real estate agency just kept on taking away. You can't have you can't have tables over there. People will scuff their feet on the wall. Like uh, you have seven maintenance people. You know what's the problem there? Uh, so they, they limited us to like twenty seats, and yeah, not paying the rent that uh, we couldn't swing the the, uh, the rent there. So that was that was that. But you know, uh, but this has been great that uh, you know this came about, and um, when. Uh, Harrison called me about it. It was like really gung ho. And I think, you know, another thing that uh, helped along, uh, not only for, for us, but for a lot of people here is that, you know, New York real estate prices yeah. really plummeted because of well, everything that happened. So uh, that's been a, a real motivational force that you're not, you know, not having to come in and spend, you know, whatever uh, to, to rent a space out. So early on, when uh, uh, these guys connected with a broker down here, and uh, Harrison let me know that that the old nightcap was available, and I, mm -hmm. I said, "Man, go, 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 take that." I had been in here, you know, uh, on a few occasions when it was open, uh, and I I knew what happened to it, obviously, because it happened so many places because yeah. of the pandemic, but. Uh, 
I just thought, man, that's such a, a great location. And, uh, and uh, as you know, there were other properties that they looked at, but uh, this ultimately, I, I kept on saying that's the one we really want to. Uh, I think that'd be the wisest move, and it's you know it's been great. Obviously, uh, I mean it's a great a location, fantastic. And, uh, yeah, certainly the you know the the cocktail you know folks in in New York know that spot because of because of its reputation when it was Nightcap and Natasha David was there, um, and it's right. near other bars as well, which is always helpful in New York. You know, people like to right. crawl and go from bar to bar. Cleve, I want to talk to you a little bit about your past. Um, uh, you know, you're a musician who toured the world and you kind of mm-hmm. fell in love with um, specifically sort of tropical slash tiki drinks. Uh, and then that's kind of the slant a little bit. I don't I don't necessarily feel like when I walk into Lullaby that it's dedicated to that. But there's certainly a slant yeah. to that. You know, we've got the, the frozen Dole Whip uh, cocktail coming out of the frozen machine, which is gorgeous. Um, and, and, you know, there's some there's some nods to that. And certainly the rum list looks pretty deep there. But like, how did. How did your love of that world sort of grow from all your travels with the bands that you played with? And then how, how does it tie into Lullaby today? Uh, and I, well, so, you know, my, basically my story starts when, when I was 10, my grandmother gave me a Manhattan. That was her drink. And, uh, you know, I never drank milk again, unless it was a milk punch. But, uh, <laughs> but as far as the tiki goes, so I started playing music professionally when I was 15, uh, meaning that I was playing in bars and getting paid for it. And I was in a band um, when I was 17. We got hired to play a high school prom at a, a place called Kowloon. I think you understand what I'm saying here. And it's, yep. uh, it's still there. It's been there since 1948 on Route 1, about 15 miles north of Boston, a gigantic Polynesian palace that holds like whatever, 3,000 people or something like that. But when we played there, I, I was 17 years old. And when and everybody else in the band was like 21 or 22, but uh, I was an overachiever at that age. But we, when the the prom ended at 11 o'clock at night, and the owners Stanley Wong, the Wong family, who we still know, uh, brought us brought the band downstairs and put out a, a poo poo platter or two, and uh, and in front of me, the 17 year old, they put the volcano bowl, uh, which is <laughs> what they were calling their bowl there, and. Uh, and I took that, uh, you know, twenty-inch straw and stuck it in there and took a sip. And I, I decided right then and there, I want to drink one of these every motherfucking day for the rest of my life. And God damn it, forty-seven years or whatever it is later, I've been pretty goddamn successful at that. So, uh, <laughs> so it just, it just kind of happened. And you know, I, I was in the band Combustible Edison, uh, the first cocktail exotica band uh, back in the in the nineties, and we pretty much helped it. We introduced cocktails to the music world at that time. And they were kind of ready for it because it had been a little underground thing since the late eighties with uh, like people would go to thrift stores and, and buy their, you know, thrift store finery. And then also uh, would find old cocktail sets and stuff like that and started making drinks at, at home. But when we got to LA, it was when I met, as I like to call them, the L.A. Tiki Mafia. And uh, I met Otto von Stroheim, who I, who was publishing Tiki News magazine. Uh, this was like 1994. And he and I had been in touch before I even got out there. And and Beach Bumberry and uh, that uh, Sven Kirsten, all those guys, and also Ted Hay, not necessarily in the Tiki world, but in the drinks world. So, you right, know, a I, known historian of the drinks world, yeah. 
Yeah. So we all connected, you know, and got together in uh, 1994 when we fought, when we were on our first tour and went to LA and uh, it was like, oh yeah, like-minded people. You know, I went to Ted Hayes' house and he, he said, I walked in the door and he said, would you like an aviation? And I was like, oh, do you have creme de violette? And he said, yes, I do. And I said, I don't know whether I hate you now or love you. And because uh, <laughs> that was one of those spirits that you could not find. You know, there were so many. I'd been collecting cocktail books since 1984 or so. And you'd find all these drinks with all these liqueurs. And you'd go to the, the liquor store and they go, uh, they took those out of the stores in the 60s. You're never going to find them. And, uh, you know, you couldn't. But Ted worked on movie sets, and uh, he found a guy in Kansas City when he was doing the movie Kansas City with Robert Altman that was a chemist, and he, he made Creme de Violet and Swedish Punch for him. And when I left Ted's house that night, I had a bottle of each under my arm that he gifted me. Uh, so it was, you know, it was really interesting just to meet all these sort of like-minded people as we traveled around the country. So that's um, – and the Tiki thing just sort of, you know – it kind of started rising up out of the ashes. Jeff wrote the very first Grog Log in 95, which was the, the Color Xerox cover one. Uh, there's 400 of them. Uh, they were five bucks a piece, and now they sell for about 150 or 200 on, on eBay. Uh, but that, you know, that was an auto monster. I did all the graphics in it. So it was, it was great. Uh, and it just sort of went from there. And I started making, I, when I started making those recipes with the real, you know, as written by Don the Beachcomber, Trader Vic, uh, et cetera, that I was like, man, this is not what I've been getting at the Kowloon for the last, uh, you know, 20 years or, or name some other place. So, uh, it was uh, revelatory. I mean, are you, pre are you pleasantly surprised that, um, I never, I, I'm just thinking of this now, so I'm conceptualizing this question, but are you, are you at least, you gotta be pleasantly surprised that you liked the things that you got when you got them in their intended form? Right. You could have very easily been like, I don't like this at all. I, I like what I'm getting at the Kowloon. I like, you know, yeah, you know, yeah right. I, I like whatever it is they're throwing together with sugar and syrup and juices and and calling, yeah, it, right. calling it tiki or exotic or Polynesian. And, you know, you could have easily gone down that road because there are folks out there that like that. You know, they're, they're like, I, oh. I much prefer the, you know, the bastardized versions, over, you know, over the, the original concepts. Yeah, no, that's very true. Uh, I mean, there's a. Uh, a Kind of a legendary guy up in Boston, Rand Duan, uh, who's been like Bacardi Man of the Year, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, at his restaurant, um, one of them, the in the in the suburbs, it was his parents' restaurant, Chezwan restaurant. Uh, but they uh, he put a regular a real mai tai on the menu, and everybody rejected it. And I remember I went up one night, and I, I said mai tai. He said, "No, I'm not going to serve it to you. You don't want it." It's, he said, "The people here would not." They said, no, we want the old version of it. It was like, we want the old-fashioned kind of cocktail. So, uh, <laughs> But, you know, I, like Jeff and Otto and, and other friends in the, in the world, Jeff and I bonded over the years about the, the good, bad tiki drinks. Oh, that was a really I good, guess that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, good, drink. bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the Kowloon was—he's been up there. The Kowloon was definitely on our list. That's not—you know, if I when I do go up there, I will order a mai tai there and and not like dump it down the drain. It's it is what it is, but it's it's kind of well balanced for what it is. So uh, it's not overly 
sickly, sickeningly sweet or anything like that. I mean, so. I always say, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. You know, we, we can we can talk about this over lunch. I'm feeling fish. We can go to McDonald's or La Bernadette. They both serve fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's what's yeah. your expectation? What are you looking for from the space that you're in? What are you looking for from the from the time you want to have, who you're with, et cetera? I'm sure that all has a lot to do with it. Um, I want to take a quick break right here and hear from our sponsors. We're going to come back and keep talking to uh, Harrison Snow and uh, the legendary Brother Cleave about their new project in the uh, Lower East Side of New York City, Lullaby. Stay tuned, everybody. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. And we are back. You were listening to The Speakeasy here on Heritage Radio Network. Today we're talking with Harrison Snow and Brother Cleave about their new spot, Lullaby. And one thing that I wanted to ask you guys about, we were talking sort of about, you know, the the, the pandemic kind of gave us all a chance to look at, um, you know, what what we wanted to keep and what we wanted to throw away about, you know, what, what was really important to us about this work that we were doing. And it reminded me of something that I think about, with an embarrassing amount of frequency, which was the the last time to to date, Souther, that you and I were in the studio at Heritage Radio Network across from Roberta's. I remember it was um, uh, March 8th. The world was going to end in four days and mm-hmm. none of us knew it. Yep. Uh, we had the team from the Up and Up in and, right. and we touched a little bit at the beginning of the show of like, hey, should we be worried about this whole coronavirus thing? And man, I was so close to saying we're going to be fine. You know, everybody always predicts with the great recession. Oh, it's the end of bars. Like, you know, the, the, the 2016 election, Oh, people who's going to want to go out and drink now. And the answer is, you know, people always want to go out. So I was very, very, very close to saying we're, it's all overblown. We're going to be fine. And boy, am I glad that that stayed an indoor thought, but (laughs) I think that a, a, a little bit of it has in a way proved true because of what you guys were talking about, this notion of like, you know, it'll be 19 degrees and people will be sitting out there in, you know, three hats and two layers of mittens sipping on martinis and, and having the time of their lives. I've been one of those people because, you know, there are there is something innately human about wanting to to go to places like this. So when you two were thinking, okay, we want to we want to open up a spot. We want to come out on the other side of this and create something. What were some of the elements from that that you were looking at like, okay, we have to keep this. This piece is indispensable. And I don't know why the fuck we were doing that for so many years, but that's just got to go. Like what was kind of some of the guiding philosophies of the the pieces you put together as you were building Lullaby? Yeah. Great question. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think what was clear is that, uh, you know, when we were, you know, really sort of 
going through it during the pandemic and 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 when we you know all of us were we were all those people out with with our three jackets and our two pairs of mittens and and um i think like it was clear that there are there that this industry is essential to human beings right we need uh we need to be able to socialize there's something about going out and spending time with people that we need in our lives um and i you know i remember having the conversation with brother cleve about like okay yeah we want to open a bar uh what is our thing what's our what is our differentiator um and uh i think that the that um you know we we what was clear is is that um there were certain values particularly in cocktail bars that uh and in bars in general that that um were the most important things, particularly that we were seeing that everybody was really missing during the pandemic, which is like, we wanted to create a place uh, where you could uh, just really like relax, have a good time, spend quality time with friends and, um, and, and be yourself and also enjoy a really fantastic cocktail um, and, and not have to have the, the experience be so centered around the cocktail necessarily. Um, you know, I mean, what's clear is during the pandemic, People got really into cocktails. People, uh, you know, everybody, you know, started started getting obsessed with cocktails and making them at home. And people were buying cocktail books and doing research. And um, so I think that uh, we didn't really miss that so much. I mean, I certainly missed, uh, you know, having a big, amazing back bar to be able to play with and create with. But uh, you know, generally speaking, I think that that, you know, if people wanted to nerd out about drinks, uh, they could do that. Uh, what we were really missing was was that quality time, uh, a place where we could have fun, let loose, you know, maybe get a little silly, maybe start dancing, you know, whatever it may be, listen to really good music um, and share those experiences with friends. And so we, you know, when we were having this conversation about like, what is the identity of this place? We, we kept coming back to those values and we were like, is this a concept? Is this just kind of like what everyone tries to do? Um, and we talked a little bit, you know, um, about maybe... Uh, there, I think the initial concept was like dive bar, but good cocktails. And then as we sort of put that into practice and started working the steps, um, we, we realized that if you, you really can't be both of those things without kind of, you can't be inauthentic, uh, both of those things, it, at least we didn't think so. So we just decided that we were going to really try to put into practice, uh, like we are certainly a place where you can come and experience a fantastic cocktail. You can have a fantastic, like fantastic cocktail experience at Lullaby and all of our bartenders are great. You can come and you can nerd out with us about the drink you're drinking. Uh, but the onus is on the guest and otherwise in terms of our outward facing brand and our style of service, we're just a bar. We're just a place you can come and have a good time. And you can have a $5 Lone Star and hang out in the corner and nobody's going to be, uh, you know, sort of stroking their mustache or fixing their tie and, and telling you about, about, you know, the history of your drink or anything like that. It's not, that's not something we try to push on our guests. Um, and, uh, funny enough, we still end up doing a lot of it because people are interested and they want to have those yeah. conversations. But, uh, we also have, you know, so many people here who, who just do their own thing. I, and, think it's, uh, I mean, I think it's a fine line when you're bartending to understand to be able to, to be confident enough in your skills and understand when you look at the guest, how much they want you to be involved in their experience. You know, right. there are mm -hmm. plenty of people who want you to just drop the drink and get the fuck away from me. 
but there are plenty yeah, of people who right. want you to drop the drink and explain every ingredient that's in there and your thought process behind making it. It's, it's yeah, a good, no, bar, a, good a good bartender has to know the difference, right? Right. Yeah, you learn. I mean, I've been doing this since I started bartending uh, in 1988, so I, I picked up a couple of things along the way, and that's <laughs> when when to shut the hell up and uh, and just leave them alone. But it is fascinating that, and I've seen this over the years, and certainly. I mean, I was there when the cocktail revival started. I was part of it, and uh, and just seeing how this has worked over the the years, and the, the, where we are right now, it's like it's like the fourth phase of it. People are really, really interested, and they like to hear these these stories. And you know, you get that a lot. Like, oh, I never knew that. Tell me more. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and uh, some, I was in a bar, a tiki bar in Boston the uh, last week, and was. Uh, was some people, woman was drinking a zombie, and she said, "Do you know the story about this drink?" And I said, "Well, you got an hour, and uh, you know, but, <laughs> but I, I did tell her." And then the guy sitting next to me said, "You mean Trader Joe's?" I was like, "No, no, 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 wrong Trader." But, uh, but still, I, you know, when, when people do want to hear it, they do get fascinated, and they'll ask more questions, and then you know, and there's more of that than I've seen. In the last what, what thirty two years of of this, really, I mean, it was like this in the in the ninety in the mid nineties when it was first starting to come out. And it was a lot of it was we had a, um, I, I opened a place. Uh, I a, the owner was uh, hired me to work with him on the B side lounge in Boston, which was where like Misty Kalkofen and John Gertz and uh, uh, Jackson Can and all these people were, yeah. you know, in that scene there, and. Uh, we had it was in a high tech area, and you know, uh, as I've explained before, um, a lot of the cocktail thing came out of high tech because of um, Paul Harrington and his Wired magazine cocktail column. And people would come in, you know, it was the, it was the online version. They, there were no smartphones then, like we have now, so people would print them, print the recipes, and then come in and, <laughs> and hand it to me can you make me this I'm like well yes i can but you know that and that was always question you know you couldn't shut up half the time so uh everybody had all these questions about these things do, do you want your satan's whiskers straight or curled i'm like oh what's that you know so, it's like, uh, so that was a lot of fun and but we are seeing that again now and people really know a lot more about all these more exotic ingredients that we that weren't even weren't available in the in the 90s or the early aughts. And now, you know, pretty much everything is available. Although I'm still waiting for forbidden fruit, but uh, oh well. <laughs> I mean, someone will, someone will surely jump on and, and get it done soon enough, right? Everything's coming. Yeah. Everything's coming around, and everything's coming back. You know. Um, yeah, actually, there is a forbidden fruit that uh, some uh, in uh, Denver, uh, but it's not over here. You can only get it in Colorado and, and New Mexico. So, uh, uh, but yep. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Souther, I think um, uh, I think you bring up a really good point too, and it, this was also a big thing for us. He's talking about like you know what it means to be a good bartender and how to ride, you know, sort of like how to walk that line, uh, you know, versus prioritizing. It's like hospitality and what the guest needs, and also trying to provide them a really high caliber cocktail experience and go into depth and have a conversation with them and connect with them if they want that. And I think that that was one of the reasons why I always thought that Brother Cleve you know, was such a good fit for this project is because obviously the man is a walking encyclopedia of cocktail knowledge. And if you, if you start him on the conversation 
well, you're going to be listening to him for about two hours uh, at, at least. Um, and, I have two uh, buttons, on and more on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but also – More on, but eh? Also, <laughs> um, but also working with him and in, in uh, you know working with him in a bar and seeing him in practice, uh, he's so hospitality focused. I mean, it's about it's always about the guest. And I think you know being a bartender myself, coming up with the younger generation of bartenders, coming up you know now in a world where cocktails are huge and you can every bar is a cocktail bar. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. you know. I mean, and I, like I, I, I the, think over and over that we've we've effectively won the cocktail revolution. Yeah. Yeah, right. You can go anywhere and get. I mean, you can you can go to the airport and get a, a, a somewhat of a cocktail, right? And it's like so. Um, I, I think that the newer generation of bartenders is, uh, you know, a lot of them are so focused on cocktails, and so fo- which is great. And they're but it but it's it's become for some people kind of a me thing. It's like look how great my cocktails are. Mm-hmm. And I've found also, you know, through the process of of hiring at Lullaby, it's like it's much harder to find somebody who is just a well-rounded, good bartender and can hold a conversation and can, can prioritize the guest and make them feel special than it is to find somebody who can double jigger right. or who can, you know, uh, or, you know, who, who knows what, uh, you know, Braulio is. It's like, uh, and, and so, I mean, like, I don't know, effectively, I, I mean, I think that like, we always want to continue creating and I think we're doing really cool stuff with our cocktails here that people are recognizing, but I think if we were to say, you know what, let's stop. We, we've made amazing cocktails. Let's stop doing that. Um, and we wouldn't be missing too much. I mean, there's so much out there. What we really, I think we're missing, you know, is it, or, or, you know, are starting to shy away of in certain areas uh, and in certain uh, bars is, you know, remembering why we, why we do this. And I think that that, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, the, the pandemic was, was just a, a big reminder of that. And Brother Cleve has always just been, yeah. Yeah, I I I completely agree, and it it reminds me of a conversation I had with with Tom Richter of Tomers back at like back in the when I was doing the first season of Back Bar back in like 2016, where somehow it it came on the topic of like his dream bar, and he's like, my dream bar is a dive bar with a pool table and a jukebox and bartenders and t-shirts and three dollar beers and great cocktails. And I kind of feel mm-hmm. like that yeah. that that speaks to a, a silent need that a, a need that at the time was silent that is now becoming very much vocalized when you see places yeah. coming back and it's like you know we're gonna open up a bar that has a great cocktail program and we're not going to be assholes about it, uh, yeah. which I yeah, think is right. fantastic. And I and I sort of wanted to ask you guys how does that philosophy kind of present itself in in like the decor or like the people you're hiring or just kind of like the drinks program that y'all put together at lullaby yeah the people you're hiring by the way so you got brian miller over there i, I don't know if you hired him or if he just uh, came over and took over the ship uh, which is his, <laughs> he was just there uh, one day when his, we opened which up which is his uh... normal pirate uh, approach to life i think yeah yeah but, you, you know, mentioned you mentioned something about the the all the rum on the back bar i think it's just i'm overstocking rums at this point just to just because of how much we're <laughs> brian is depleting our rum <laughs> rations here <laughs> like, uh, i mean yeah um no, please. Yeah, uh, top, Brian. Man, it's in the employee contract. Yeah, I, I so I met Brian at, when he was uh, when he and Lynette were running Elitaria back in like 2006 uh, or so, and then at, at Pegu around the same time. So, uh, and uh, you know, I did a lot of those Tiki Mondays with him. So it just seemed natural. I just texted him and said, "Hey, man, what are you doing?" And uh, next thing I know, he was like, "Yeah, okay, uh, yeah." 
that's good because we are really good friends and, and you know have had fun doing a lot of events and stuff like that so he just said yes and he came over and everybody met and uh he just said yep i'm in so it's it's been it's been awesome yeah i mean so uh Brian's an interesting one. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, like, um, it's, it's funny you ask that because we, and, and this is some, you know, somewhere, uh, it's a, uh, sort of an element of the project that Jake was, uh, you know, very much involved in is he was like, look, you guys handle the cocktail stuff. I just want everyone to be cool. Like everyone's got to be cool and like down to earth. And he also did a lot with the space. And, um, and so when, when there was an opportunity for Brian, I remember, you know, obviously I knew, I knew of, of, of the guy, he's a, you know, an absolute legend, but brother Cleve was like, texted me and he was like, uh, I think I kind of like hired Brian, like he's going to come in, but like, uh, yay. And I was like, Oh God, I hope this guy's not an asshole. Um, because you know, I'm, he's amazing pedigree and, uh, you know, I just, you know, I know the bars he's worked in and they're all bars that I very much revere and, and respect. Um, but you know, lullaby is a slightly different style of service. And he came in and I was like, oh my God, this dude is like, I, you, you don't work in dive bars. I was like, I couldn't believe I was like, I mean, he's, he's like a pirate and he doesn't, he doesn't, he's, I mean, talk about, uh, you know, pretenses, like the guys, he's the least pr pretentious person, uh, you know, you could ever meet so down to earth, so guest focused. Um, so that's been early. I mean, in terms of hiring, uh, that's been our, our foremost priority is like, if somebody's eager and they're willing to learn, we can teach you how to make cocktails. Well, that's not, that's not really the point. Uh, can, you know, can you uphold our, our style of service here? Right? Like, no. can you be a, can you be a cool person? Can you be down to earth? Can you be nice to our guests? Can you not take yourself too seriously? Um, can you stand working with Brian? Uh, <laughs> and having him put shots of Eldorado 15 in front of you every 15 minutes. Um, and yeah, in terms of the space, um, uh, you know, I think, yeah, sparse, uh, but deliberate, you know, we just, we don't, again, we, we don't want to, uh, attract too much attention to ourselves. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the, you know, there's, we have very much like a sort of beige uniform color palette. We're trying to just like play into the space while keeping it unassuming. You know, the space is underground. We were like, let's make it a, let's make it a little cave i don't know um yeah. so but uh, it's bright it's not cave like at all you know it's uh because yeah. of that color palette you've chosen even though you're uh, you know one i don't know it's, you're barely six feet under the ground right it's just uh, like a half a set of stairs um yeah and, right. but uh, you know it, it, it you don't feel like you've stepped into darkness you feel quite comfortable it's uh, uh you know i love yeah. boats i love being on boats and it's got a kind of boaty vibe things are curved and transitioned and smooth there aren't a lot of hard corners you know um so I, I think I find the place to be pretty inviting and comfortable. Yeah, you know, I think you were, I, when we were banging around the original concept, uh, it, it was the whole dive bar thing was a, a concept. And like, I have a jukebox. I was going to bring that in and just you know fill it up with the uh, seven inch singles and uh, you know and make make it you know, pool table. Maybe not. You know, this is a small yeah, space, small but space. Uh, New York City. You know, in, and painted dark, and then all of a sudden it was like, you know, no, it's not going to be dark, and uh, it's better. Yeah. I'm glad we didn't follow through with that. There's no room for a jukebox in here anyway, but but it's better off with just having DJs and Spotify and stuff like that, too. So, um, and it's just, uh, I think that concept was, well, you know, you figure it out as you're going along. You go, nah, and it's it's great that it is bright and, and you know, brightish and inviting. 
and uh, just kind of cool and, you know, the couches and stuff like that too. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, we're running out of time, so I'm going to have to wrap this thing up, but really great uh, addition to the neighborhood, really great addition to, um, uh, well, to know that now you, Brother Cleaver, are going to visit New York a little bit more often because you're going to come down and keep tabs on on your team and, and check out the space. So that's exciting for all of us here in New York to have your presence a little bit more frequent or, or a little bit more, um, you know, sort of regulated. We can understand when you're coming. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'll be playing more music too. Yeah. And playing, playing, playing some cool ass music. You're going to be doing some DJing there from time to time. You told me when I saw you the other day. Yeah. So that's exciting. I did that last night. In fact. Oh, you did. Nice. Uh, yeah. Um, it was very well received. Cool. Um, so it's, uh, it's lullaby. It's at 151 Rivington street. It's lullaby NYC on Instagram. So you can follow along with their shenanigans and keep up with what's going on over there. And when you're in New York city, you got, you got to visit Harrison and, uh, the team with Brian Miller over there and get some cool drinks. Um, guys, anything else you want to plug before we wrap it up? No, no, this, this has been good. great. Yeah. Thank you so much <laughs> for your time, Southern. Yeah. Uh, and Greg. Yeah, man. Really great having you guys on. Um, well, I guess that's it for this week's episode of the speakeasy. Please, uh, uh, tune into heritage radio network to check out many more shows just like this one. Uh, there's opportunities all over the website to donate. We are a nonprofit. Those dollars keep the shows on the air, uh, for you for free so that you can tune in and hear all about all the good things going on in the, the food and drinks world. Uh, thanks so much, everybody. Cheers. 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 So you don't shun the devil with your rock. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.